whole lot, disgusting, vulgar, greasy. Those kind of words have been on your tongue and your sister's tongue is too much around here. Who do you think you are, fair queens? I just remember what Huey Long said, that every man's a king and I'm the king around here. And don't you forget it. Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. I'm Matt. I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. Here's how this works. The two of us have gone through each list, decided on a theme of the original entry, and have come up with a pair of potential replacement titles which share that theme. We'll talk about that original entry. Sometimes we'll regret that we have to get rid of it. Sometimes we'll rejoice in being able to drop it. But this podcast is not just another dissection of an outmoded list. In part one of this episode, Matt had two new albums to talk through, and I made my choice for the subtitles album list. Now in part two, I have two new movies to discuss, and Matt will decide which of them deserves a place on the subtitles movie list. Sometimes I'll have listened to the albums, sometimes he'll have seen the movies, but at the end of the day, what matters is how well we've sold the titles. And at the end of some of those days, one of us will want to bop the other for that choice. Once we finish these lists off, we'll do some fun activities with these new lists we've collaborated on, but before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is A Streetcar Named Desire from 1951, uh, directed by Elliot Kazan, um, a film which your 11th grade language arts teacher definitely showed you uh, in order to have to teach less <laughs> that particular week. Um, I will start off with a fun story about the movie club I used to run at school. Um, I, I, I screened this for them at one point, and it was one of the worst experiences I had doing movies with them because about 75% of the way into the film, I realized that they weren't joking when they told me they couldn't understand anything that anyone was saying. Because of the because of the accent work that those people were doing, and I was just like, I thought you guys were kidding, or like I thought you were just making a comment about how thick the accents were, and they were like, no, we needed subtitles, and like when we talked about the movie at the end and like talked about what was actually going on and what was being implied off screen and everything, they were very interested. But I would just always remember that they genuinely needed subtitles to do Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee doing these weird, interesting Louisiana-style accents. Um, I feel like Streetcar is another one of those movies that does not need a lot of introduction. It is one, again, that people sort of know about even if they are not movie people or theater people, uh, as, as our theme for this week, we'll talk about theater is like at the heart of what we are doing. Um, but this is a film which is about a, a pair of sisters living in Louisiana, um, in, in what's meant to be sort of a contemporary setting. Blanche Dubois has been forced out of her job in a different part of the state and now has to come live with her sister Stella in New Orleans. Um, Stella is married to a man named Stanley Kowalski, and Stanley is the original state of nature, basically. Um, and 
in dealing with Stanley and and his brutishness, um, Blanche gets involved with a very nice fellow and a friend of Stanley's named Mitch. Um, everything sort of falls apart when all of the deceptions that she's brought with with her, plus Stanley's uh, complete intention to destroy her, and um, to destroy her her sort of weak and meager falsehoods as well as a desire to just destroy her generally kind of explodes all over everything. That is the basic thrust of a streetcar named Desire. Um, it is one of those movies that I think kind of just deserves the reputation it has. Um, it's a movie where everything you've ever heard about how great the acting is is just basically true. It's a, It's got four major roles spread out between Brando as Stanley, Lee as Blanche, um, Kim Stanley as, as, uh, Stella and Carl Malden as Mitch. Um, I mean, they are genuinely four of the great, four of the great performances in American movies, just period. Um, I feel like there is a certain level of punchline in the way that Brando yells Stella, um, something that all of us have seen parodied at least once in our lives, but which is also, like, totally unprecedented in a lot of ways in what we had seen in American movies um, up to that point. Uh, the certain level of, like, unhinged, messy, dirty, half-naked presentation that he gives us. So my question is, is that moment too decontextualized from what's happening in the movie? Like... I, this, this is a genuine question. I don't know if, like, <clears throat> the legacy of this now is, or, or that moment is just wrong, I suppose, like, for what is happening at that moment. Like, I don't want to say we see it as, like, a lovey thing, but, like, I don't know. Is that is that too much of a punchline that we forget, kind of, like, I mean, right, that's the end of the movie, but, like, how, what you were just saying, fraud and unhinged that moment is. Well, it's like the first third of the movie. Like, it's a it's a first half moment, um, which has, like, gotten memed really, really hard. Um, I mean, it is, it is one of the original kind of, like, movie memes <laughs> in that it's something that you can easily, easily decontextualize. Like, it's a scene where, where Stanley is very drunk and he's hit, he's hit Stella and, and Stella has gone to a neighbor's who refuses to, like, give her up to her husband, and eventually, um, Stella just sort of, like, after this display of complete humiliation, um, and desire on his part, just sort of, like, does this sultry little walk out of the, out of the neighbor's apartment, and she and Stanley go home and, um, do whatever the beignet is for, whatever beignet or chicory coffee flavored euphemism you'd like to make for sex. Um, like that's the, that's the, the scene itself. And it is, it is taken out of context because I think a lot of people look at it as like, here's a way to like show a lot of passion or here's a way to show a lot of desire. Um, when in fact it's like, this is about a woman letting her drunk, uh, abusive husband walk all over her um, because she likes, she likes the way that they, you know, they move it, move it. Um, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting and great scene, especially because 
everyone else in the scene is kind of horrified by it. Um, the only two people who are excited or turned on by that scene are Stanley and Stella. Everybody else is sort of like, oh my god, what is happening right now? Like, there is a lot of revulsion. Um, a lot of, like, Stella don't go to him, and, and at the end she, she chooses him anyway. Yeah, so that, like, I don't know. I mean, that's just sort of my question. Like, have we, like, are we too, f I mean, what I said initially, like, is that too decontextualized now that we sort of forget, like, how horrifying this, this whole thing is supposed to be? I think that sort of happened. I mean, there's, um, there's an old, the Toast post, um, that Danny Orper did, uh, sort of discussing how Blanche and the Zoe Deschanel character from New Girl are the same age, and, like, how <laughs> in the space of, like, 60 years or something, we have gone from seeing this, this unmarried 30-year-old teacher, um, go from being this desperate, sad old maid to being, like, who's that girl? It's Jess, you know, the sort of, like, quirky, fun-loving type, and it's, like, that's exactly what's happened, and it's very strange. Um, I, I think you sort of are hitting a point about it that's, that's worth noting, though, is that it, I think part of the reason this movie hits people as, like, the method acting Bible, or as, like, the, the sirens for anyone who ever, um, did, like, Stanislavski, Adler, whatever else, like, I think there's a reason why, why we like to think about the acting more than the story at this point, is because the story no longer rings true for people. I feel like if it ever made a lot of sense to people, it sort of, it sort of just doesn't anymore. Um, I think it's sort of, it's almost like in a, in a weird kind of sick way. I feel like you, you get more people who are kind of sympathetic for Stanley and like annoyed primarily with Blanche as opposed to looking at this woman who desperately needs the kindness of strangers and because the people who should be kind to her have just totally failed in that, in that moment. Um, it, it is a film where I think you sort of look at it and say, oh my gosh, look at this like incredibly detailed, totally in control performance from Brando of someone who was uncontrolled. Um, and you always get people, including me, who find it very interesting that Vivian Lee in 1939 is, is Scarlett O'Hara and then the natural, or at least the historical sort of uh, progression is to Blanche Dubois over the course of more than 12 years, but 12 years later, that's who she is. Um, I've always thought Carl Malden was great in this movie. Like, Malden is one of my, my favorite character actors. I have gushed about him before on the podcast. Um, he's really terrific in, in this nice guy role here. Um, it is, it is just interesting that it is the kind of movie where we like to say, oh, the acting is great, or oh, what, um, what a skill Kazan has with his, with his performers, as opposed to saying, this is a triumph of production design, for example, which it is, or this has a great score, which it does, or um, the writing in this is really interesting and the dialogue is really well done. Like, I feel like that's that's been superseded. Um, I, I hadn't really thought about that before you said 
that we'd lost the context. But I do feel like this is this is such a classic that it has kind of been decontextualized, especially when you think about how Stella has been been memed by by people long before the actual idea of memeing was was out there. I mean, it's a Seinfeld bit, like, mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and it's funny when you take it out, like. Like, I grant that, I, yeah, like, that's just always been interesting to me, like, thinking of that, thinking of the, the rave, you know, the raving for the acting, which totally warranted, but, like, I don't know, I worry that we just, like, that stuff lives on, but we kind of forget that, like, the story is scary, really, like, the stuff happening here is, <laughs> is not good, um, and that's putting it mildly, and like hearing that people sympathize with Stanley is honestly horrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, not to derail us, that's just something that's been interesting to me. Like, I didn't, you know, it's not only this movie, of course, but like, I just feel like this one in particular, like, we still hold it up as a great thing. And like, I don't know how many people could say, like, you know, that it's supposed to be a horrifying story. Like, if we just kind of lose that, that bit. I'm, I'm also thinking about it just in its context of, um, of like, what other films were being released around that same time. Because 1951 is actually um, a pretty interesting year. Like, there's a lot, there are a lot of different um, movies out there that I just, I really respond to. Um, it's the year where you have... You have like three front runners from for Best Picture, basically. Um, American in Paris, which is a Gene Kelly, Leslie Caron um, musical, wins, and that movie is sublimely beautiful. Um, it has wonderful dance sequences. It's of course um, based on on the Gershwin music that sort of fills it. It's a it's this wonderful. Wonderful, enjoyable, exciting movie, which is still pretty emotional for, like, a dance movie. Um, a lot of which don't engage in a lot of emotional feeling, but you can see Kelly is trying to create this kind of, this depth of feeling. Um, and it's technically really fascinating, so that's, like, that's one of them. And then you have A Place in the Sun, uh, which is a George Stevens film based on an American tragedy by Theodore Dreiser, and that is on its own a really interesting method actor movie. Uh, it's Montgomery Clift um, in one of his breakout roles. It is Shelley Winters. It is a very young Elizabeth Taylor. Like, there's a new generation of actors coming forth in this beautifully shot, um, really affecting movie. I'm not a huge Place in the Sun guy. I know there are a lot of people who, who strongly prefer that one. Um, interestingly... Both of those films were on the 98 list with Streetcar Named Desire, and then in 2007 they both fell off, and A Streetcar Named Desire is the only one that's still there. Um, And it's got, between them, it has probably the biggest star in Marlon Brando. Apologies to Gene Kelly and, and to Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, but like in terms of the people who I think AFI wants to say, like, dictate what American cinema is. I think that's got, that's got the guy. It's also, um, it's also a film which, I don't know, it just sort of pointed to as this acting turning point. Um, 
but it did not even win um, the the best screenplay award. Like they sort of had they had a number of screenplay awards at the Oscars that year, um, and in a field which included the African Queen and <laughs> the Streetcar Named Desire and a place in the sun. Uh, a place in the sun was the one that was the one that that was triumphant. Like I think this was this was seen as a really good movie as a really well-made movie um but i think i think we shouldn't look at it like people in 1951 thought it was the best movie um part of it is because it is pretty new part of it is because this is the same year that um one of the the best picture nominees is quo Vadis, which is like a classic sword and sandals like um early christianity story um and and that is its own like different world that Hollywood is playing in. It's an interesting year for sure. I kind of thought about doing a 1951 Oscars episode for this one before I finally settled on the theme that we're gonna go with. Um, but like this is it's a movie that I think even in its own time people recognized was great. Uh, they nominated everyone from from the from like the main cast for Oscars and the only one who didn't win was Brando, which is kind of fascinating. Uh, Humphrey Bogart finally won his for the African Queen, one of the great makeup awards in in Oscar history. Um, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting year. It's an interesting context. It feels like even then it was just sort of awkward for people to get into. It's always wild to me that all of them won except Brando, but. The Bogart of it all makes it make more sense, but like it's still just kind of crazy. Um, I'm also I'm just looking at the at the list now. I wish we were so close to having two movies have a nomination in all four acting categories, and I, that would have been really fun. I think I don't know if that's ever happened before, but probably not. Like I think that would have been a fun little tidbit if it had. <laughs> It is also worth noting that this this is in the same year that they make um, uh, Death of a Salesman into into a film. Um, Lashlo Benedict is not one of the best remembered directors in Hollywood history, but like that movie was nominated for a couple of Oscars, including Frederick March, who got the Willie Loman nomination. It is very very interesting to me that like in the same year. You have two of like the essential twentieth century American plays kind of like clashing with each other in movie adaptations at the Oscars. Like it, it is this is this is sort of a turning point year. Like the fifties are such an underappreciated decade uh in, in movies, which just makes me mad all the time. <laughs> like this is this is a really interesting year where I think I think what you're saying about understanding the context being conditioned to read between the lines about physical abuse, uh, sexual abuse, rape, um, statutory rape, like, gosh, everything is in this movie. Um, but being able to read between the lines was part of what people were trained to do with their movies. And, like, I think they understood the context, and there's a certain level at which I think people were just kind of freaked out and disgusted by it. Um, and I think everybody recognized the craft, but it, it is a hard movie to like. Um, even now, it's a hard movie to like. That's sort of what I meant in general. Like, 
I've always understood this movie as important and as good. I don't know why I emphasized important so weirdly there, but whatever. Um, I can't say I've ever liked it. I don't know if I've known anyone who really liked it. Like, that's sort of... I don't... Like, I don't want it to sound like I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, like, let's love this thing now, but just... I don't know, I worry... We're forgetting that we're, like, really not supposed to like what's happening, um, but to appreciate it all the same. Uh, There is is something um, meaningful to me in the fact that On the Waterfront always shows up higher on these lists than Streetcar does, even though I think Streetcar is the better movie. Um, But, I mean, On the Waterfront at least has the underdog story, and even though it doesn't end you know, with a, with a great, like, sense of, um, I don't know, like, it, it has, like, a happy ending, but, like, there's so much suffering that it doesn't feel like a happy ending, um, but I, I think there's a reason why you have On the Waterfront always coming out higher, just, it's an easier movie to enjoy, you know, like, same director, um, same people they rely on, another Brando, uh, Malden collaboration, like, it, it, it is just an easier movie to like. And I think that's just part of why it ends up higher. Even if, you know, the reason that streetcar is going to persist is because we're going to keep teaching it in junior year English, you know, forever and ever. On the waterfront's probably high, much higher. It's worth adding, I think because it's from New Jersey. I'm sure that's why you think it should be, man. I hate that movie. All right. So to get to, to get to our actual theme today, um, again, I didn't, like, do a whole lot of description of the film, because, first of all, I think you've probably already seen it, or at least sort of get what it's about. You you have the sense of it, um, you being you out there in podcast land. Um, but also because what I'm discussing today is not really about the movie, it's about the origin point. Uh, so our theme for this week is the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, uh, which used to be a really, um, really fertile ground for where your movies would come from, you could expect, um, in the days of Thornton Wilder and William Saroyan, uh, you could expect that your film version of, of your Pulitzer Prize winner was going to show up eventually, and one thing that I wanted to say before we even get into this is that in the past, like, 25 years, there are just not that many film adaptations of Pulitzer winners anymore, which I think says something about the way that the theater used to be seen as, like, a like a primary zone for drama and now is, is just not. Um, especially because if you look at the ones that have been that have been made recently, like it's the most recent crop is, is doubt rabbit hole in August Osage County. Um, and I love doubt, but like those three are generally put into the box of handsomely made big cast with a lot of people you've heard of, but generally not great movies. Um, there are a couple dozen films that, were adapted from Pulitzer Prize winners. It's just that most of them were from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And even by the time you get into the 70s, it's just harder to find um, 
just harder to find the films that do it. It is a way that um, that we've gotten two Best Picture winners. That they happen to be two of the worst Best Picture winners is kind of funny to me. Um, you Can't Take It With You, uh, which was made into the 1938 Best Picture winner, and Driving Miss Daisy, which was made into the 1989 Best Picture winner. Um, both Pulitzer for drama champions. The less we say about those, the better. Um, but as I was looking through and just sort of seeing what other movies might shape up, um, or might just show up, rather, um, as possibilities for this, there are some that we've done already that I was kind of like, oh, that's too bad that we did these already, but at the same time, I think that's a sign that there is like a way to do, do good adaptations. Um, so Craig's Wife, which we talked about a long time ago, um, that was, that was a Pulitzer winner. Um, Diary of Anne Frank, which we did even longer ago, <laughs> was a Pulitzer winner. Um, and then there, I mean, there were, there were other options, but basically I, I narrowed this down to two that I basically just thought are really good. Um, just I thought were good movie adaptations. So this idea of the Pulitzer for drama is not just did it win, because that's not a criteria. Um, but a question, too, of how well was it adapted? Um, which isn't to say that I'm an expert in the two plays that we're, we're going to talk about here. But as a film, what do the filmmakers, what do the actors, what do the technicians do to make this feel not like a, you know, like a TV playhouse kind of thing, but what do they do to make it into a film that stands on its own? Um, which, which is understandable as a cinematic text first and then as a theatrical text later. So our two movies are... Um, a Soldier's Story, which is adapted from A Soldier's Play. Um, a Soldier's Story is from 1984, directed by Norman Jewison and based on Charles Fuller's uh, Soldier's Play. And the other one is Londe's Journey Into Night, uh, which is from 1962 and directed by Sidney Lumet. It is based on Eugene O'Neill's posthumous, um, posthumous play of the same name um, from 1956-57, but which was originally written, I think, or finished in, like, 1941. So, it has a long history. Matt has his hand up. I'm gonna take a break. All I want to know... Uh, well, I would add that maybe an adaptation people are familiar with recently uh, was Fences. Um, mm -hmm. So that one's out there. But all I want to know is, why is Glengarry Glenn Ross not here? Never seen it? I don't like David Mamet that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I looked at it. There, I mean, there's there's a long list of um, of potential choices, and I thought about trying to dig up Glengarry Glenn Ross for this, but I was just like, I'm just not really a David Mamet guy. Like, there are some people who aren't Neil Simon people. I'm just like, I'm not a David Mamet guy either. As much as I kind of admire the the dogmatic approach, just isn't for me. It's another movie that lives as, like, a meme, I think. Just the closer speech. Um, so, that was just me trying to be funny, but... Glengarry Glenn Ross, Pulitzer Prize winner. Maybe not many people knew that. <laughs> yeah, so I will actually... I'll actually start off by saying... By sort of pulling behind... Um, pulling the curtain out and seeing what was back there. So, 
I thought about Our Town, which was made into a movie in 1940, um, which I think is, like, for a literal interpretation of something which is famously not literal, um, I think is actually, like, kind of beautiful and, and just, like, really really kind of attractive in a lot of ways. It is part of that stacked year of 1940. Um, and it was nominated for best picture, even though it's not like up to the, to the standard of a number of those movies. It, it was, it's, it was one I thought about. Um, I thought about Harvey, um, because why not? Um, everybody loves Jimmy Stewart talking to the invisible bunny. Uh, and I also considered how to succeed in business without really trying, which First of all, incredible to me <laughs> that, that, that that play won a Pulitzer for drama. Um, I mean, I understand they don't mean drama just in the sense of, like, being sad, but, like, what a, what a take. What a great take that is. Um, eventually, I decided against it, uh, just because I think the last third of that, once they stop making fun of the rising up the ladder and start having to deal with the top of the ladder, it stops being quite as interesting. Um, and Soldier's Story and Long Day's Journey both work so, so well at the end, and, and I liked how they finish stronger. Um, but for those of you who are looking to catch up to how to succeed in business, um, the film version, which has some, like, Fosse choreography... Um, and a really, a really fun lead performance um, by Robert Morse. Um, just just a, a good time, and, and I encourage people to check that one out. It's the part where I just wish that Sunday in the Park with George was made into a movie so that it could be here. <laughs> if only. If only. All right, so let's start with, um, let's start with a soldier's story, um, which is... Interesting because out of the the three movies we've got, one is by Tennessee Williams, needs no introduction. One of them is by Eugene O'Neill, needs no introduction. Charles Fuller is this kind of interesting figure who was super, super successful, made a, like a few major Broadway plays in the in the seventies and eighties, uh, including this one. Um, are you? You, you looked like you were about to pull Charles Fuller off the bookshelf. Are you just playing with your lamp? Yeah, there's no Charles Fuller back there, sadly. I was about to say, this is... <laughs> I was about to get proven wrong in a really fascinating way. Um, but it's, it is an interesting corollary. Um, because this one's also set in Louisiana. Uh, and, and around the same time period that Streetcar is set. So Streetcar is originally... Put on, um, put on the stage in '48, and a soldier story is supposed to be taking place at a um, at an army base in 1944. So there is this really interesting connection in time and place, and how the two of them. The only thing they really have in common is how hot it is. <laughs> like a soldier story is a sweaty movie. Um, Streetcar Named Desire has to be one of the sweatiest movies ever made. Like, these are these are both movies about the heat, um, in which, to sound like someone who really loves mu- movies about the 70s in New York, it's almost like the setting is a character. Yada, yada, yada. Like, that's, uh, here we go. Like, there, that's kind of what's going on um, with both of tell, these. Tell me more, you savant of criticism. Just incredible how many people just want to leave it at that. Um... I, I do like that there is that connection. 
Um, and it is really just about the only connection because Fuller is African-American. He wrote historically-minded plays um, about, about black people. And what's sort of interesting about a soldier story and a lot of his other work is about the conflict between African-Americans um, in a segregated world. Because in, in 1944, in the setting that he's, he's put this story in, um, the United States Army is still heavily segregated. Um, the men in the unit that the story takes place in are basically a segregated unit. Um, it's all black men uh, being run by a white officer, like the guy in charge is a white officer. Um, this is just, it's interesting because it is getting primarily at the conflicts within that community and thinking about, like, this This is just, like, a tremendously important thing to consider in the art because it's so easy for for your history class, not to blame your 11th grade history class along with your 11th grade language arts class here, but, like, it's so simple to just say there were two kinds of black activism in the 60s and then it all disappeared by 1980 which is kind of the story you get in your public school or private school. I don't know why I'm bashing public schools here, but like, it's kind of the story you get in your curriculum. It's kind of the way that it's taught. Um, and something that I really liked about a soldier story and that I wasn't expecting, um, is, is that the, the film is very much about two interpretations of what it's like to be black in a world that is emphatically and unapologetically run by white men and how you act as a black man in that world is like a personal choice but it's also going to get you flack and it's going to get you static from other black people so the basic premise of this one um is that there is a sergeant uh in, in the army who is shot dead after getting really drunk and stumbling back to barracks, basically. Um, he's, he's trying to make his way home, and someone has shot him. Uh, this is Sergeant Waters. He's played by Adolf Caesar. Um, and he's this sort of tough, chattery, um, you know, uh, career man, basically. And that's, that's kind of his personality. It is worth noting that he is light-skinned. Um, it is worth noting that he does not like um, soldiers from the South. He does not like this sort of stereotype uh, soldier, someone who, like, smiles, somebody who um, essentially reinforces the stereotypes that white people expect in Louisiana in 1944. He's extremely mindful about that. And what makes him interesting is that he is surrounded <laughs> at, at this camp. Um, he's basically running an outfit, which is not in Europe. Like, they're not in Europe because they are barnstorming against white units in baseball. Like, this, he's basically running, like, a star baseball team, which is, like, its own little twist in the film. Um, but Waters is surrounded by men with darker skin who are generally Southern, who come from the Deep South. And there's just, like, a lot of friction between his version and his vision of what African-Americans have to be like to get respect. Um, 
and and what they have to do to bring honor to the United States military, which is something he unironically seems to seems to buy into. Um, but at the same time, they are sort of looking for for him. His his troops are looking for him to joke around with them a little bit or or commiserate. You know, sort of like understand their side of things because he's a black man in the military. He un- he literally understands their side of things, but he is unpopular because he refuses to do so. Um, there there's like no sympathy, no empathy. There is there's just a, this sort of like hatred of them for being a different kind of black man than he is. So he has he has some loose acquaintances in the group. He has a stoolie in there. Um, but the story itself is a Billy Budd style story, um, which I think is, I know I had the same thought, like the same look on my face when, when I realized it, it's not something you see in the criticism much. Like I haven't seen, I'm sure other people must've noticed this, but like, it's not something I see a lot of other people talking about. Um, but essentially Waters has a star baseball player in the unit named Memphis. Uh, Memphis is played by Larry Riley. And Memphis is a talented musician, uh, has a great singing voice, is a lot of fun, uh, is a terrific baseball player, a great hitter, a great fielder. And he also happens to be an unassuming rube. And Waters does not like that this person who who is not trying to, like, suck up to white people is just so nice and so amiable that he seems like he's fitting that stereotype. Um, Memphis is really popular with the other guys because, again, he's a nice guy and a good time. Um, and there is a clash between Waters and Memphis. Memphis, who is the Billy Bud, and, and Waters, who is the Claggart here. Um, between the two of them who are fighting with one another and Memphis can never quite figure out why. Even though Memphis is surrounded by people who kind of understand what's going on, there is another soldier in the unit named Peterson, uh, played by a very young Denzel Washington. Um, it's exciting to see. I mean, I like Denzel old too, but it just it's really cool to see him like when he was like young. Like it's very clear this is an early role for him. Um, but he's playing the kind of guy who essentially is always going to fight with Waters because he doesn't want to take crap off him. And they do have a literal fist fight. Um, Peterson is bigger. Uh, Peterson is stronger. He's younger. Uh, But Waters doesn't fight fair. Waters kicks him in the nuts. Waters throws sand in his eyes in order to, like, win the fight. Um, But Waters likes Peterson. Like, he, he respects him as the person because he is hard-edged and contemptuous and and difficult um, and doesn't let himself get stepped on in the way that Memphis, because he doesn't care, like, is going to get stepped on. Does it get into the sort of um, psychosexual thing? A little bit. I think it's in there. It's not really a, a major piece of the story. Um, but, it, I mean, it, it is active. Um, and Waters doesn't quite realize how much harm he causes to Memphis as he, like, continues to sort of, like, bear down on him and and get him into more and more trouble. Um, So that's, like, the basic outline of this. I haven't even... Actually, it's not even the basic outline. It's, like, the backstory, (laughs) the basic outline. 
um, includes a the rare black officer, um, Davenport, this is played by Howard E. Rollins, who comes in to investigate the murder of Waters. Um, and, and Davenport is only given three days to do it by the racist um, fort leader. The, the fort commanding officer is like, look, I don't really want you to interview my white officers. I don't want you to try to find the Klansmen. We have enough trouble with the town already. I just kind of want you to make a report and get out of here. Um, and the assumption going in is that Waters was killed by Klansmen. Like, that Klansmen, like, didn't like what he was doing and, and just shot him. Um, now I've gotten to the actual outline of the movie. Um, this is one that I knew vaguely just because I'd done some Oscar spelunking and it had been nominated in a few categories. Um, but I don't know how well known this one is. Is this one that you've, you've come across at all? No, I haven't. Um, which makes me think it's probably not one a lot of people have, just because, I don't know, it seems the content and the Melville of it all make it more likely that like my demographic would have come across it. Um, so no, this is not one I know at all, though I'm very deeply interested now. Um, I also see there was a young David Allen Greer here, mm -hmm. which fascinates me. I'm not sure what he's up to, but... It's, I, I find this movie just, like, incredibly compelling. Um, it's, it's a movie which has kind of gotten swept under the, under the rug a little bit. I don't know why. I mean, like you said, it's young David Allen Greer, it's young Denzel Washington, who was up for three Oscars. Like, it's, it was a big movie. Um. Yeah, I'm just, like, poking around on it now. Like, all that stuff, it seems very well reviewed, and, like, those are hanging on, um. It had a Bill Clinton bump because it was shooting in Arkansas. Mm -hmm. Like I guess further supporting Toni Morrison's point. Um, yeah, I don't know why this one is like. I mean, Norman Jewison's a name. Yep. Like I don't yep. know why this one is is maybe not forgotten, but just not talked about really. It is currently on Hulu, so when I wanted to go dig it up, I could find it there. So if you have a Hulu subscription, hopefully it is not off the surface by the time. You listen to this, it is, I think it is sort of, um, it is out there a little bit more. I think there is supposed to be like a, um, like either a, a theater revival or like a limited series based on this or something. Like, I, I think it is supposed to be getting a little bit more shine, but like it is, it is a super interesting story. Um, I went into this a little bit nervous, um, because I thought it was going to feel a little pat. And to some extent it does. As a movie, I think it, it sort of has the... It has the dialogue that you only ever hear in plays. And, like, you know what I mean by that. Again, I, I mean you in podcast land as well. Like, there's, there's a certain level of talkiness and talking to oneself that one only ever gets in plays. And that, that remains in the film. Um, which, which I don't love, but it's, it's the way it is. What I do like about this is that, and forgive me if you're a theater person and you hate that I'm saying this, but I think film, because of the magic of editing, allows flashbacks to work more seamlessly and to work more as their own stories. And this is a, a story that is functional because of the flashbacks. Like, 
essentially Davenport brings guys in. Um, he talks to Peterson. He talks to Cobb. This is the David Allen Greer character. Um, he talks to a number of guys who essentially tell him what was going on before, uh, which is how it is that Adolf Caesar is a major, <laughs> a major figure in the movie, um, despite, you know, getting shot in the first five minutes. So, like, that's, that's, um, its own, its own interesting perspective, is that when you film it, it is easier to make it work with the flashbacks as a mystery that's sort of unfolding. Something which I think is interesting about the movie is that I think if you are watching this thing with your brain on, it becomes clear pretty quickly that Waters was not killed by the clan. Like, I think the film doesn't make any bones about the fact that, like, within about 45 minutes, it's pretty clear that this was done by someone on the base, and who it was on the base who would have done it, could have done it, would have wanted to do it, etc. Like, all of that is really interesting, and it starts to turn the temperature up, um... As again, Davenport is trying to work through flashbacks and work through people's testimony and work against the um, the different kinds of racism that he's facing. Um, he is he has like two white people he has to contend with. One of them is Nivens. Um, Nivens is the guy in charge of the base, played by Trey Wilson, and he's like your old school Southern racist. Like he's the stereotype of that. Um, who is, who is generally contemptuous of Davenport. Um, but even Taylor, another captain, the guy who's like outranking waters in the, in the unit. Um, he's played by Dennis Lipscomb and he's like, he's trying to be supportive of Davenport and he like tries to help him out and does a good job of like wrangling witnesses for him but also is just so adamant that he'll never get a conviction that it's kind of pointless to try. Like, he's that kind of quote-unquote white ally, which is to say not helpful. Um, and there's there's this really interesting work being done throughout the film which contrasts your, like, the type of, of idealized black man that, that Waters wants to be versus the stereotyped version of a black man that Memphis is to him, again, because Memphis, like, has a personality. Like, he's not just, a like, an Uncle Tom who can play baseball. Like, there is a person in there um, who is, a, like, really a, a kind person, um, which, which Waters never wants to see on his own. Um, but you also are getting to see the system that forces them against each other, like the the obvious racism of Nivens, the sort of soft racism of Taylor. Because um, Taylor is the kind of guy who would say a credit to your race. Like, he's that kind of racist. Um, but there's just, there's a great deal of nuance in this. Um, and once you get into this idea that it's more a Billy Budd-style story, which has added racial dynamic and racial um, discrimination and, and interracial hatred rather than focusing on the psychosexual stuff as much. Like, once you get into that and stop thinking that it's supposed to be like, who killed Waters? Because, like, the mystery, I think, is pretty clear to unravel once you start watching this thing. 
that's what makes this compelling. Um, and I do think that it's a lot of people will compare this to in the heat of the night because of, you know, you have your fish out of water, um, black legal figure. In this case, Howard E. Rollins is taking over the Sidney Poitier role. Um, you've got like a sympathetic, but problematic white guy who's like there to help ish. Um, you have, you have this question of like, what is the town interacting, um, and doing in this setting? Like all of those are still there. I think that this is just after something different than in the heat of the night, like superficially, that's what that's about. But like, there's an update that I think Jewison is applying through Fuller's screen, or I don't want to say that this is Fuller's screenplay without looking at it. Um, yes, he did his own screenplay. Should have known that already. Sorry. Um, but I think it's interesting that Jewison is looking at this not as like, oh, isn't the Deep South super racist, and is instead looking at it and saying, well, what is the, what is the community of black people doing with one another and how are they managing one another and that's something which is just made really clear through flashback and really done really well with some really fine performances caesar is super good denzel washington of course is super good um larry riley never gets the 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 plaudits that he should in this cast but like i think he's really good um there's a lot that works here, and and if I've talked about this a lot, it's because I don't think this is as well-known or as much seen, um, and it definitely deserves... I mean, it's it's not a super long movie. It definitely deserves the time that you would give to it. Where's Denzel when you're, like, best of the last 30 years? He's in a... He's in sort of a weird... Like, this role, you mean? Or, like, Denzel, the actor, in terms of, like, among other actors? Like, where does he rank? Yeah, where does he rank among others? He's yeah. So my issue with Denzel is that there are a lot of movies that he's been in that I'm just like, this is not like a terrific movie. Um, he sort of reminds me of Meryl Streep in that way. Like our one of our original takeier episodes was about like there is no doubt that Meryl Streep is one of our great actors ever. Um, but like the the films that she's been in are just not as great. Um, now Denzel has a better best movie. Um, than she does, because Malcolm X is, like, what a, like, that is one of the great movies, and it is one of the great performances ever. Um, I will say, when he unloads on something, um, it's, it's like a unique experience. I'm not into Denzel directing himself so much. Um, you mentioned Fences, and Fences was just like, I like that play a lot, but I did not care very much for, for the, the film version that, that, that he made. Um, but I do think that this is like, he is one of the great actors ever. And it's, it's almost a shame that we don't see him doing supporting stuff. Like obviously when you have a lead actor of that magnitude of that caliber, you don't waste them in supporting stuff. Um, but he's so good as a supporting actor in this, like he provides this, just that extra level of focus, um, to, a you know, a secondary character, which is really exciting to see. I've always, I've always liked seeing big actors do smaller roles, even if it's like an early stage for them to be in. And like, it helps you see what they're like as actual actors and performers and like what he's, what he's accomplishing, um, in a, in a secondary part is really special. 
I suppose part of me was just setting you up for a hot take there, but like I wasn't as you were mentioning his performance, I did just get interested. Like <clears throat> I mean I think between Malcolm X and Training Day, like we will recognize him as like able to really unload, like you said, for a long time. Um but yeah, it's kind of interesting just, like, considering his place. Um, I think we just, just, like, assume him as a presence now. Um, which is to say nothing of uh, a soldier story here. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really have anything else. I'm, I'm really interested in this one. And like we were saying, like, it just has so many parts that seem really good or really notable. Um, that, I mean, hopefully this has, like, a little second life on Hulu. Um or just a second life in general, it seems well worth it. Yeah, I think it's, it's, um, and I'm going to talk about this for Londe's journey as well, but there's such a structural beauty to this one that I think a film just sort of allows it to take advantage of. Again, I'm sure it's a great play. Um, I'm sure there's a lot to recommend it as a, as a theater piece, but like as a, as a movie, I just think it's, it's so well put together and it's so well balanced like a Norman Jewison movie is always going to be balanced and have like a great sense of pacing and editing and that's something else which really adds to it um yeah this is it's it's a really good one it's a really good one I went into it like as someone who generally likes um soldier courtroom movies but thinks Breaker Morant is a great movie and thinks that A Few Good Men is kind of secretly pretty bad um, this one is much more like Breaker Morant. It's got a lot more social ideology behind it. There's a lot more, there's just so much more depth to it. It's not just platitudes. It's not just like good dialogue. It's not just like dramatic moments. It really is, it really is so thoughtful and it, it, it leaves you contemplative at the end. Another movie that definitely leaves you contemplative at the end is Long Day's Journey into Night. Um, as I mentioned before, this is a posthumous, um, a posthumous release for Eugene O'Neill, um, who kind of owned the Pulitzers during his lifetime and then owned them again after his lifetime because this one, like I said, was was finished I think in like 1941, and O'Neill basically put it into his papers and was like, I don't want anyone to look at this thing for 25 years after I'm dead. Um, well, Eugene O'Neill died in 1953, and it won a Pulitzer in, like, five years, and then was a movie less than ten years after that. So you can see his wishes were not particularly, <laughs> particularly followed. Um, I don't know the whole story there, but they were, he was just completely overruled, um, and he was not there to stop him, be, stop anyone, because he was, in fact, dead. Um, it's, it's a play which did not get the release in his lifetime because it is so obviously autobiographical. Like, it, in terms of, like, autobiographical work, it's almost got people's real names in it. Like, it's that close. Um, they're, like, down to the fact that um, he has a, a brother who his mom lost, um, or uh, I think just died in... in infancy um and that brother was named Edmund and then he was named Eugene well in the play that brother is named Eugene and the one who is a sometimes sailor who is also a poet and has tuberculosis the way that Eugene O'Neill did was named Edmund so like they aren't he isn't trying 
Like, some people try to hide the autobiographical stuff. This one makes zero attempt to do so. Um, the film itself takes place in one day, uh, as the title kind of implies. Um, it also, as far as I can tell, and I am much more familiar with this play than I am with a soldier's play, um, but as far as I can tell, it's just a straight um, adaptation of the of the play itself like the the screenplay and the text of the play are like identical um so that's part of the reason why this sucker is long it is a little bit shy of three hours um i think it's kind of a common complaint that you feel those three hours i think you feel those three hours because this thing is brutal um it's really it's really a very simple a simple play uh, a simple film, because it really only focuses on four characters. There's a fifth one in there, um, uh, one of the, the help at, at the summer house where these people are at. But otherwise, it really just focuses on, on four people uh, in the Tyrone family. You have James Sr., you have James Jr., uh, you have the other son, Edmund, and you have the mother, Mary. Um, if you thought that the... Brando, Lee, Malden, Stanley um, combination in Streetcar was good. You'll love the Ralph Richardson, Catherine Hepburn, Jason Robards, Dean Stockwell um, collection in this one. This is just an absolutely stacked cast, um, all of whom are doing terrific work. Um, for me, this is probably probably the best thing that Catherine Hepburn did after she was like in her like famous prime, like post Spencer Tracy collaborations. This is like a pretty clear number one for me. Um, basically the way this one works is you get everyone into twos. You don't often see them in groups bigger than two. Um, basically you just sort of bounce these pairs off of each other and People start off the conversation trying to be nice, and within seconds, there is so much bad blood between them that they start yelling at each other, or fighting with the other one, or defending themselves, or criticizing something, or just generally being awful. And the stressor in this play is that in a family where the men are all alcoholics, um, the one who is the real problem... For, for the family, is Mary, who has been dealing with a morphine addiction for many years now, um, who has recently come back from the sanatorium, um, and there is a fear that she has started using again, which she has. Um, all of them, even Edmund, who is the youngest and, and is not quite as aware of the depths of her, of her addiction as the other two are, um, even he understands that she's back on it. Even he understands that she's back on the drugs. Meanwhile, um, the elder, the elder Tyrone um, James is. I mean, we may as well just go through and say what's wrong with all of them and what everyone blames each other for. Um, basically, the the elder one is James Tyrone. He is a successful ex actor, but he is also um, someone who came from from tough times from a tough background, you know, worked in a, in a mill and a factory when he was like 10 years old. Um, he is a miser. The, the word they use for him is miser refuses to spend any money on anything. 
um, basically doesn't have much time for his family, supports them up to a very, very limited point, um, and all three of the other people in the house blame him for being a cheapskate in a way that has brought trouble onto them. Mary is extremely, extremely lonely, um, doesn't have any friends, can't rely on her, on her husband or her sons to, like, keep her company, um, and there is this tension between her and Edmund, even though Edmund feels, uh, very tenderly towards her and cares about her a lot, um, there's something relatable between the two of them, like, the way, the way this is set up, James and Jamie are like each other, and Mary and Edmund are very much like each other, um, but she's living in the past, and she started to go downhill when she got addicted to morphine in the wake of her childbirth of Edmund. So, like, everyone in the house kind of blames Edmund for her morphine addiction, including her, even though it's clearly not his fault. Um, then there's Jamie, who is played by Jason Robards. Um, Jamie is sort of this ne'er-do-well drunk has no ambitions particularly. He's just not really a good guy. <laughs> it's just sort of this this guy who's looking for the next drink, looking for the next lay, resents everyone, is never going to be anything. Um, and then there's Edmund, who is, is the Dean Stockwell character and is this sort of beautiful soul, but has, um, has all of the same problems as his father and brother, there is the same level of wanting to do bad, of being addicted to alcohol, of using that as a crutch for everything, of having the sharp tongue and the quick temper. Like, he has all the same bad things that they do. He just can soften it in, in ways that are more attractive. This one I think you are more familiar with than the other. Not the movie, oddly. Um, I read the play, and hearing that the movie is basically the play straight through... Makes me feel like I'm pretty sure what's going on, um, but I, I'm much more familiar with the story in general. Yeah, this one, and and I think you can back me up here. This is like, if you like, streetcar is unpleasant. This one is unbelievable. This one is just vitriol and regret and anger and and meanness. Just like it's it's a mean play, um, and it's it's a mean play. It has the similar kind of vibe as, like, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and that sense of, like, the sniping, the hating, the resentment, all of that. But, like, at least Virginia Woolf is funny. Like, at least that one's got quips, that one's clever. This is just, like, digging up the old wounds and hitting them with a hammer and then going back and doing it over and over again. There's there's no, like, lightness or relief in this thing. Yeah, Streetcar is uncomfortable and, like... Uh, unlikable, really, as we were talking about, um, like to, on, on purpose. Um, this one just hurts. Like it's cruel. Well, both of them are cruel, but like cruel in different ways. Um, it's yeah. I mean, you said mean. Like it's just mean. It's nasty. Um, and it like you feel it. Right as soon as you said, people say they feel the three hours. My immediate thought was. Well, yeah. Do you know what it's about? <laughs> of course you're going to feel the three hours. And then I realized you just meant, like, the time. Um, 
Well, I don't. This, yeah, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf was the first thing that came to my mind, or even right that long section of like before midnight. Just mm-hmm. how uncomfortable that is to be in. Um, you know, they're up to kind of different conversations here, but like it has that just. Oh God, I feel so anxious just like watching this happen. Something about this, which is like exceptionally difficult, is that almost every conversation, all of these little two-handers are like starting with people trying. And the thing that sort of gets you as you watch this is like everyone is trying to be nice at the start of every single one of these scenes. Like there's always like, I'm concerned about this other person or like I am, which which happens a lot because Edmund is like getting the diagnosis on this day that he is tubercular. Um, and that he's going to need to go away for six months to a year. And there's, like, a sense that his dad just kind of believes tuberculosis is fatal and why spend money on it? And there's, like, a fear there. Um, one of the early conversations between Jamie and James is like, look, I'm worried about Edmund. I care about him. I love him. I want him to be to be well. Um, a lot of the, the conversations about Mary are like, it's so sad to watch her do this. It's so painful to watch her go through addiction. We don't want her to feel the shame of it, and we don't want her to, like, have to go back to it. And yet everyone within seconds always returns to it. It's like, it is just one of the one of the rawest experiences I've ever had watching a movie. And I'm sure in a theater it must be overwhelming. Um, at least in the movie, as we'll talk about in a second, you got, like, the remove of of close-ups, which you don't get in, in theater, or you get the remove of just knowing it's been filmed before, but, like, feeling that energy in person, I don't, I don't know how you do it, and I don't know how actors do it night after night, like, it just seems incredible to me that anyone could do that. Yeah, I've never seen this one staged, I'd be really interested to, but I know I'd walk out of that in my feelings. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I just, like, right, there's, the, like the percussiveness of that closeness, um, and I can only imagine it with this thing. Um, are you right? Do they, like, I mean, I always think of the end where like Edmund and um, James are having like actually getting somewhere, mm-hmm. and Jamie walks in drunk, and James tries to remove himself, and it's like, okay, we're all learning. Jamie's still a mess. But, like, as soon as Edmund comes back, Jamie wakes up, and it's all over, and Mary is fully high at this point. Like, you're actually getting somewhere. I mean, it's the definition of one step forward, two steps back. Like, they're actually getting somewhere. Like, they're learning some methods, it seems like. There's some explanation and understanding, and then it just all goes to shit immediately. So, as a film, something that I really like about this is that I mean, the casting is is just absolutely top-notch. Like, this really is, like, peak performances from basically everyone in this movie. Um, But I love that they have Richardson and Hepburn. Um, Richardson being, along with Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud, one of the three great, like, classic Shakespearean actors of the the 30s and 40s, just an absolute icon. Um, and, And James is, like someone who had talent and squandered it because he wanted the the cheap buck of, like, making money off of it. Um, Which is basically what happened with 
Eugene O'Neill's father, who was an actor and got famous playing the Count of Monte Cristo over and over again and, like, never developed himself. Um, like, this is, this is someone who you can tell is talented, who does love the theater, who really does love Shakespeare and all of that. Um, and, and getting Richardson for that is just what an incredible job that is. This, I mean, truly, like, one of the giants of classical acting. Um, and then Catherine Hepburn doesn't require introduction, just like one of the great, one of the great actors, period, full stop. You don't have to go any further than that. But Jason Robards and Dean Stockwell are both being brought up in a different tradition. Um, Robards is a very, very different kind of actor than, than Richardson is. Um, I mean, you can sort of hear it in the voices. Richardson is doing, um, doing this, this very, very put on kind of voice, which you would expect from, from this sort of classical actor who was big in the late 1800s. Um, and Robards sounds like Jason Robards. who's like this sort of gruff always has like something in the back of his throat. Um, and in that scene you reference where Jamie comes in drunk and, and screams at Edmund about everything, like just sort of screams at him. Like, I hate you so much. I will try to destroy you. You have to get away from me because I love you, but I also hate you. Like, that scene is unbelievable because Robards is connecting to a different style and method of acting than Richardson was. Like, when Richardson shouts, it's like, you know, it sounds like a play from, from something, like, classic that you're used to. And Robards is accessing something much more like what Brando is accessing. Uh, in, in Streetcar. And then there's Dean Stockwell, who, I mean, the first play, the, I think one of his first roles, if not his literal first role, is playing this little kid in Anchors Away, um, who falls for Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. Um, and it's so funny to see him as a child actor in that. And here he he's like, you know, like young and kind of live and has this sort of like matinee idol appearance. Like he's, he's very pretty. Um, there's something Cliftian about him. There's something about him that is reminiscent of Monty Cliff down to the sort of skinny doomed, uh, sort of laconic body language, um, which, which he brings into it. So like one thing that we get in here in the film version is two conflicting opposed styles of film acting, which of course works so beautifully, um, to, to show how different the parents are from the children and how similar they are, because like the, the end result is the same way. They all get to the same place as people, which is they're friggin' miserable all the time. And you get to the same place as actors, which is they are all giving truly enormous performances, which are like historically great. Um, Another thing that I love that this one does, and which a soldier story, if they're like, I think soldier story is, is shot in a much more conventional way. Um, this one has a moving camera. Long Day's Journey has a very, very active camera. Um, we've talked about Sidney Lumet before. We have a lot of nice things to say about Sidney Lumet, um, who is one of our, one of our, you know, classic, not absolute tippy top of the tier, um, kind of guys, but just a relentlessly reliable um, figure in an American directing. And this one uses more space than 12 Angry Men, but in the same way that 12 Angry Men 
loved having different camera angles to like create tension or would move around in a small space to create tension. Um, Lumette is doing many of the same things here. That same level of, um, of understanding that if you move the camera in a smaller space that should be confined, um, you just get to see more and to see differently than you would if you watched this set on, on stage. At the end of the film, he does something which is like really effective and then it's super shocking, which is not an emotion I thought I would feel at the end of this. Um, because I, I watched this when I was younger, and like I watched it again last night just to check in, and I'd forgotten about it. Um, but he like pulls the camera all the way back at the very end of the of the film during Mary's final monologue, where her her husband and her sons are just like too tired, worn out, drunk, and sad to even look at her. Um, and he pulls further and further away until you would be sitting, like if this were a theater, you would be seeing it like this from the absolute furthest back balcony seat, like as far back as you can get. And the darkness is almost complete. You just get the light from the from the lighthouse just sort of like whooshing in every eight to ten seconds. Um, and you can sort of hear her quietly talking. Um, and you can see these still figures ish like you get to a point where you can barely even see that there are bodies at the table besides hers and then all of a sudden there is this hard cut to the normal lighting again of her face and then everyone else gets one last close-up and then it's back to this extremely far away vision which i think is this beautiful cinematic way of talking about what you were talking about like we're so close like there is a development you can see them getting closer to actualization or closer to understanding when you look at their faces in this last moment like you could see something or grasp at something and then Lumet pulls us back again in a cut just returns us to where we were before um to that blackness to that despair to that distance where no one can actually reach each other and it is i mean i'm making this sound like it's the worst time in the world and it kind of is um but, like, it is it is also, like, a really great movie. Um, and like a soldier story, like, just a really terrific adaptation of a play. Anything else to say about this one? Um, no. I like how it's experimenting with the camera at the end there. Um, especially since, like... It seems to just be the play without much else happening, so mm -hmm. that it's experimenting with framing is fun. Because um, right wherever you are in the playhouse, like that is your frame. Um, it's just nice to hear about movies that are good adaptations of plays. I mean, we've talked before about how hard that is. Um, so it's a. I guess you like your what courtroom marshals and i like mm -hmm. my play i mean you like your play adaptations too but like this is just a fun little topic to me i love when these adaptations actually work because it's so hard it's so hard to make them work it's so hard to make them function to like actually make something that was for a one genre where the where the visuals are so set and like this is the difference between like an adapting a novel or a short story and adapting a play it's like you're so close. <laughs> You're so close to thinking like, oh, I can just do the same thing or the same basic idea and it'll work. And, and obviously it won't. Um, and there are just so many 
movies that don't understand that, and it drives me absolutely nuts. Um, and I think it's kind of it's interesting to me. It's it's coincidental. Um, but Elia Kazan, Norman Jewison, and Sidney Lumet are three people who I think were very, very good directors, but I wouldn't call them, like, they. none of them would be on my shortlist for, like, the 30 to 50 greatest directors in American history. Like, I, I know about Kazan and Lumet, maybe that's a little, um, a little, what's the word, combative. I'll say combative. A lot of people would disagree with me about that. But, like, I just, I think all of them were great technical directors, and all three of them were so good at telling stories on the screen that, like, it worked for them to have these plays to adapt. And more more power to them for being able to do that when so many directors just absolutely fall on their faces trying to do it. I think there's maybe too much assumption that, like... <clears throat> Oh, right? They're performing, like, the play lives around the performances, so that should be able to just carry over to the movie, which is about the performances, but, I mean, what, like, right, you're right, it's just so hard dealing with that change in space, which may seem slight, but, like, that introduction of extra distance, or a different kind of distance, like, just fundamentally changes what how that story needs to be communicated. Um, so yeah, kudos to all these people for like getting it, uh, or at least mostly getting it. Uh, um, it's just, <clears throat> I wish we could see more of this and I don't think it's a lack of talent. I just think it's, it's, it's really hard to do. Um, and I don't, there's not that many people who like are consistently doing it well, if any right now. I mean, last thing I'll say, and then we can get into the spiel here, but, like, Hamilton is a Pulitzer Prize for Drama winner. Um, and the number of people who just kind of, like, like real critics, like, verified, like, I have a job and, and a byline critics who I saw really just being super excited about the fact that they moved the camera a little bit and, like, the filmed play version of that. I'm like, this is a sign that we don't know how to do this anymore. <laughs> like, these are... This is like a dying art, being able to adapt a play to film well, because if we're like getting amped about the extremely limited, extremely basic stuff that's going on in, in that Hamilton one, um, which is not even a movie, it's just a, it's just a film version of the play, like if, if we're so excited about that, we're just so far away from being able to make Streetcar Soldier Story, Long Day's Journey tonight. We're just we're just not on that on that playing field anymore. Apparently. All right. So on to spiel. Um, the original AFI movie this week is a really good one, and I again I feel sort of weird that I didn't talk about it more. But you guys know Streetcar Named Desire, Elia Kazan, nineteen fifty one. It is a film which is based on the Pulitzer Prize winning play. Uh, and so I decided to go spelunking for some good play adaptations um, of, of films which are adapting those Pulitzer Prize for Drama winners. On one hand, there is the vaguely Billy Budd A Soldier's Story, based on Charles Fuller's uh, Soldier's Play. Um, this from 1984, directed by Norman Jewison. A film which at first seems like it's going to be like Jewison's other work, to look like In the Heat of the Night, a murder mystery, a whodunit, um, 
But it turns out to be much, much more than that because Fuller has a screenplay which is really getting at just really tough, sensitive issues about black manhood, especially in a world where being a black man is like having a target on your back no matter what. Um, and it's a it's a super interesting movie because it does allow the flashback structure of the play to come alive in a really accessible way. Um, and again, I'm sure I've never seen it. I've never seen this one staged, but I am sure that um, they do a great job doing that. Um, but in a film, you can just use editing. You can use the magic of like a nonlinear story in just a really, really simple, easy way to understand that I just really think brings forward Caesar's performance and, and the issues that his Sergeant Waters is bringing to the fore in, in just really profound ways. Um, and then, on the other hand, we have Londe's Journey in Tonight, which is based on the play of the same name by Eugene O'Neill. The film from 62 is directed by Sidney Lumet. Um, it is a straight straight adaptation of, of that play um, in all of its sad and, and miserable and hateful glory. Um, but Lumet, you know, for all of the incredible faithfulness that he shows to the, to the screenplay, um, or to the, to the original text of the play, I should say, uh, for all of the faith he shows to that, he knows that he has to make it come alive through camera movement, through showing unusual camera angles, and so he, he does not rely on close-ups, he does not rely on a static camera, he does not rely on your average, like, mid-shot. He is moving that camera, he is finding a way to move it around the, the rooms like you're someone in there with them, like you are trapped in that beach house with them. Um, he finds ways to do strange angles that bring... Uh, some terror into the film when people start to get scary we are so often underneath them or to bring sympathy as when we like watch people um from above and and feel like we are looking down on them like they're sad children um scared little people which in some ways these people in the tyrone family are um and of course it has that final that final burst of of movement and distance um which is, which is so striking, no matter how you slice it. So, as a replacement for Streetcar, either Soldier's Story or Long Day's Journey, what do you think? This is a good one. I like these. Um, I mean, part of that is the aforementioned, like, plays into movies is just fun. Um, but I think two really good options here. I'm going to go with um, a Soldier's Story, um, because I'm intrigued by the right the notion that it starts by looking like basically Jewison's going to fail that it's just going to be kind of one of his <laughs> typical movies um but it finds this piece of the play that can be emphasized or or made even better in a different genre um anyway, just the fact that he and Fuller collaborating together on this, like, and it feels like a kind of two, two genres meeting, um, and like finding the middle of that Venn diagram in some sense. Um, but I, just, I, I like the way that was framed as kind of like, it seems like it's going to start like a typical movie of his, then finds that piece of the play that it can really emphasize and play with. And right. Becomes this, 
faithful adaptation and Fuller's still there, but like finds a new way to do this thing. Um, in pretty rapid succession, no? Like the play and the movie are pretty close to each other, aren't they? Mm-hmm. As far as I can tell, yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to go with the soldier story here, but uh, Long Day's Journey into Night, it was close. Um, and if I were going sheerly on vibes, I would have picked that because it's the most <laughs> uncomfortable of them. But um, I think they're both really elegant examples of like how one can do this, and I wish more people did. Um, took lessons from Jewess and or Lumet. <laughs> yeah, I think the the thing that sort of speaks to me about about um, soldier story is something I mentioned earlier, but I, I just really like that. Like it's telling another Louisiana story within the space of like five years, like within um, within five years of when streetcar is supposed to be happening, you're getting another story, not so far away um, in the same kind of America. And it feels like it's like it's from space. <laughs> like It's so different from a streetcar. Um, it just it just a sign that there is always something else to, to write about. There is always some other story, um, which I think is very easy to cynically convince ourselves is not the case. But there is always a, a different way to approach um, the material, to approach a time and space, and, and a soldier story really does a great job at that. There's always another world there, even if it's like conceivable that they were down the street from each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's always. There's always a new pocket to tell a story about. All right, so Matt has chosen to replace A Streetcar Named Desire, another uh, 40s Louisiana story, which is fitting uh, in A Soldier's Story. If you are interested in, um, well, in music that kind of does some mashing up the way that, that Matt was describing A Soldier's Story mashing up, you might be interested in our uh, first part of this episode about, oh boy, I'm going to say this wrong, so I'm going to read it. Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation, eighteen fourteen. There we are, um, and the and the idea of New Jack Swing. Um, also, if you are interested in seeing where Matt makes his playlist, where I put my letterbox reviews. If you're looking to see uh, either one of our blogs, if you are looking to see anything about us or about the uh, generation of the original idea for this podcast, you can find that along with the old episodes. Uh, on subtitlespodcast.com, and we will see you next time.